0: Okay, Jesse, last week's historical model babe murder was wild. What's in store this
1: week? When an upstanding police sergeant's much younger fourth wife disappears under mysterious circumstances, new light is shed on his third wife's so called accidental death. Dirty cop or just bad luck in the wife department? We'll let you know what we think in today's episode. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's treacherous triangles, agonizing affairs, or just one really, really bad husband. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram
0: at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Yeah. And if you leave
0: us a review, send us a DM or an email, we'll get you some stickers.
1: Absolutely. And thank you guys. We've had some really cute reviews lately and they absolutely warm our heart, every single one of them. And I gotta say, we are recording this like a month ahead of time. As you guys know, we've talked about it a million times. If you are new to the show... I swear we don't talk about this all the time. We get right to the crime. But we are about to both have babies. So these are (laughs) pre-recorded maternity episodes. However, when this comes out on Wednesday the 24th, I think... The next day will be our girl, Andy Cassette's big birthday. Yeah. And by big birthday, I mean, you're going to be really big. I'm going to (laughs) be really big because the baby's due date is
0: two days after my birthday. So you know what will make me feel way better is a really cute review.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And a baby. We might have two birthdays. (laughs) So yes, um, you guys can't do anything to make Andy go into labor. Uh so if you haven't already and I know so many of you have left us wonderful reviews but if you haven't already we would love a nice review. And if you um, have and you haven't gotten stickers please hit us up. Absolutely, absolutely. For Andy's birthday we want to give you stickers. Yeah, this is really exciting. So hopefully, you know, like I said we'll keep you guys updated but hopefully there will be some announcements soon. Okay. Now, back to what we're all here for. The true crime. Last week, we went full historical, which you know I love to do sometimes. This week, we are going absolutely opposite. This is a pretty modern case that was really well publicized. So I'm sure a lot of you guys know of this case. I actually didn't really know that much about it. In honor of our friendship, actually, Andy, I'm pretty sure 2007, when this crime occurred, we were too busy becoming best friends and hanging out.
0: Yeah, and like drinking martinis on Newberry Street and like working (laughs) as waitresses and bartenders.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So I don't think we were paying attention to what was going on in the suburbs of Chicago. I was going to say, when did it happen? Do you know where Bowling is? Bowling Brook, no. Yeah, so it's the most of the story takes place in Bowling but it's also near Naperville. Oh, I know where Naperville is. Yeah, and everybody yeah. knows where Naperville. It seems like yeah. Nathaniel said the same thing because he went to school in Evanston. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So this we were obviously busy being besties and getting drunk at this time, so we missed this story, and it is a ride. So I am very pleased that we finally get to do. Mr. Drew Peterson, he is a piece of work. So I'm going to jump right in here. It was late, deadly dark, and freezing late October night in the suburbs outside of Chicago when Walter Martinek heard a banging on his front door. Looking out the window, he sighed. It was his neighbor and friend, Tom Morphy, a good guy who had a little bit of a problem with the drink. As Walter, known as Wally to his pals, opened the door, Thomas blurted out, I think I just helped Drew move Stacy." Wally was taken aback and asked Thomas to clarify, but Thomas was gone, worse than his friend had ever seen him, incoherent and rambling, clearly drunk. Thomas kept trying to press some cash into Wally's hands while Wally asked him where the money was from. Morphy couldn't or wouldn't answer his friend. He finally staggered off, leaving his pal mystified and confused. Thomas returned home where he drank himself into a deep blackout. His girlfriend woke him the next morning to tell him the news he already knew in his heart and soul. News that sent a tidal wave of guilt crashing over his hungover head. Stacy Peterson, Drew's wife and Thomas's stepsister-in-law, was missing. Thomas's girlfriend left and Thomas swallowed an entire bottle of Xanax, washing the pills down with a handle of cheap booze. Yikes. Not not good. He like cried a whole while- bottle? Yeah, he was trying to commit suicide. Okay. He cried while he laid back down in bed, wishing for it all to be over rather than face what he had been complicit in. The next time Thomas Morphy opened his eyes, he was miraculously alive in a hospital room in Naperville, Illinois. He fought to stay awake, but went under once again. It would take some time for the haze to clear and for Morphy to tell the story to the FBI and local police. An account that would shed light not only on the disappearance of Peterson's 30 years younger fourth wife, but reopen the mysterious case of the death of his third wife as well. The arrogant and manipulative police officer had gotten away with murder and more for years using his charm and cop connections, but now he would finally pay for his crimes. This is the sordid story of perennial scumbag and wife killer Drew Peterson and the tragic deaths and disappearances of Kathleen Savio and Stacey Kales Peterson.
0: Yeah, I mean the accidental third wife
1: death is always suspicious if your fourth one goes missing. <laughs> yeah, not a good look, dude. Um, you got away with one. Let's not press it here, but he did, and thank goodness he did, or they would have never nailed him. Ugh. Well, no, not thank goodness. I wish he hadn't. I wish he had gotten caught on the third. <laughs> um, weird also, turn of phrase there. The, the Peter the Peterson last name is like cursed. It really is because it's the staircase guy yep. and um, Scott Peterson, too. Oh, no. I'm sorry, guys. It's just, it's, you know, three in a row. We don't want to see four. Sad. So let's start with who Stacey Peterson was. She was born Stacy Ann Kales, January 20th, 1984. So she was like our age, um, more like my age, like a year older than you. In Downers Grove, a suburb of Chicago. Stacy's family suffered a lot of tragedy during her young life when Stacy's mother, Christy, was one month away from delivering Stacy. So, like, how pregnant we are right now. Yeah. A house fire killed Stacy's older sister, Jessica, who was only 18 months old. What happened? How? How? I don't really know the details of how it started. I don't believe there was foul play at hand. But the baby died of smoke inhalation.
0: Did they get it out, or was it in the building? I, no,
1: I think they got her out, but she—the damage oh, was already done no. on the baby. Lungs. That's so sad. Also, I can't. Oof, I can barely like handle small things going wrong right now. <laughs> I'm also moving, guys, and so it's been a, it's been a trip to move at eight months pregnant. I can't even imagine how you would feel being this pregnant and losing. Your baby girl, your oh, older like child.
0: Horrible. And your house? Like, did their house- And your play? house.
1: It, I mean, it would- I don't know how you'd crawl out of that. Mm-hmm. Additionally, speaking of things you can't crawl out of, in October 1987, Stacy's younger baby sister, Lacey, died of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, What? Yeah. So in three years, Stacy's parents lost two baby girls. Before Stacy was even four years old, she had lost two sisters. Whoa, that's crazy. The tragedy sent Mother Christy on an understandable, self-destructive spiral. You know, she had addiction issues compounded by depression, and of course, the circumstances of her life recently. Um, she was often in trouble with the law and frequently abandoned her living children for weeks on end. Eldest child Yelton, a son; Stacy, and younger sister Cassandra. So there's there was five kids, and now there's three. Okay. Eventually, Stacy's dad, Anthony, filed for divorce and won custody of the children. When Stacy was 14 years old, her mother took the family Bible, said she was going to church, and never came home again. Whoa. Uh-huh. So Christie's sister, Candace Aiken, believes she went with another man and got herself into a bad situation. The family completely believes that she is dead, like that she's not like somewhere living a different life. Um, whether through foul play or drugs, no one knows, including her children. Because no one's ever heard of her again, it seems very weird that she would never reach out to her children ever again, even if she did run over, run away with a man. Because she was divorced, too. She had every right to, you know? Yeah. I'm so glad the dad got custody. Uh, he wasn't exactly great either, unfortunately. Oh, God. Damn yeah. it. <laughs> yes. Um, Stacey's childhood was rough. Her dad, though, you know, seemingly coping with these tragedies a little bit better than the mother, also had a drinking problem. And by the time the kids were like pre-teens, he figured they were old enough to take care of themselves and he would just leave for weeks on end, forcing them to scramble to feed themselves, to, you know, keep the lights on. Uh, eventually the situation was so bad that Stacy went to stay with her older half-sister, a woman named Tina, who was Christie's first child from a previous relationship. And Cassandra, who was the littlest one, uh, was taken in by her boss at her part-time job. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. And Yelton was old enough that he was like over 18, so he was out of the house at this point. His name's Yelton? Yelton. Y-E-L-T-O-N. I don't think I've ever heard that. No. I wonder if it's like a family name. Yeah. Yeah. So Yelton, though he was technically an adult, did not fare well either. In his 20s, Yelton was in and out of jail for stealing cars, domestic abuse, violating parole, and most horrifyingly, aggravated sexual abuse of a victim between the ages of 13 and 16. Uh, uh, what? Yeah, he was apparently in some sort of a sexual relationship when he was 25 with a 15-year-old. So that's not a relationship. That's abuse. And he had also, like, physically assaulted her as well. Whoa. Yeah. So he was a registered sex offender. I don't believe... He never, like, uh, assaulted uh, his sisters or anything. This was at least from what I read, a more isolated incident, but still twenty five year olds shouldn't be with fifteen year olds. I, I was gonna
0: say like if they were if they were in a relationship, it doesn't feel as much like the um passed down sexual assault thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It was just really gross. Like don't don't be with 15 year olds, you know? Ugh. So like Stacy just really had the the cards stacked against her, you know, at 17 years old, she was living with Tina and she was already graduated from high school and she was working at a hotel as a desk clerk um, over the night shift. And she put herself through school at Joliet Junior College. Uh, St- Stacy, despite the terrible odds of her childhood, was outgoing, sweet and ambitious. Her goal was to become a nurse. And it was at her hotel job in 2001 when she met 47-year-old police sergeant Drew Peterson. She was 21 and he was 47? Oh, no. She was 17 and he was 47. What? Yeah, this is
0: icky, 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 icky.
1: Drew's partner apparently had the hots for the woman who worked the night shift with Stacy, so they kind of like went on a double date, which why anyone thought this was a good idea at all is, is beyond me, especially because Drew was still married. Oh, my God. What a scumbag. Yep. Many people were pretty grossed out by the relationship, especially Drew Peterson's current third wife, Kathy Savio, when she discovered the infidelity and the fact that her husband's new girlfriend was underage. Yeah, but that's cool. He's just going to kill her. So. (laughs) Let's get rid of her. (laughs) Just,
0: Just like, you know, just disposable wives, you know. Yeah yeah napkins you, oh, oh, paper you, plates. oh you, you found out that i am want to mm-hmm. fuck a 17 year old and you don't like it okay all right let's uh, oh, figure out how so to kill you
1: grody. so drew peterson's bosses weren't that excited about it either as you can imagine a police sergeant dating a teenager oh my god he's a sergeant Hmm. So, um, what I'm about to read you is an account from Drew Peterson himself, as interviewed by author and journalist Joseph Hosey, who wrote today's primary source material, a book called Fatal Vows, The Tragic Wives of Sergeant Drew Peterson. And this is a great account um, from somebody that was a journalist that like extensively followed the case while it was happening. The only problem with the book is that it ends, it's like published in 2008. So it doesn't have a lot of the the end story. Um, So I also watched Drew Peterson, an American murder mystery on ID to kind of fill in the gaps about what happened when and after he was convicted. Okay. So those are my sources. And yeah, he he did a lot of interviews with Drew Peterson. As you'll see later, Drew really enjoyed courting the media. So there's a lot of uh quote grabs that we can take from dirty old Drew. What an asshat. <laughs> He's primo asshat material over here. Wait, wait till wait till you read like some of these quotes are gonna make your skin crawl. When the department found out I was a 47-year-old sergeant and I was engaged to a 17-year-old, there was a big scandal, Peterson said. Once the department brass caught wind of their involvement, the higher-ups approached prosecutors to determine if Peterson was violating sexual abuse abuse statutes (laughs) by romancing a girl practically a third his age. Apparently, he was not. In Illinois, 17 is the age of sexual consent, unless the older person is in a position of authority, such as a teacher, counselor, or coach, in which the case the age of consent is 18. Wouldn't a cop fall under that? I 100% agree with you. When I was reading that, I was like, hello, he's a cop. Like the most authority. Yes, yes. But the state's attorney's office decided that Peterson's status as a police officer did not constitute a position of authority. Sergeant, that's so fucked up. It's the most authority. This this boggles my mind. The state's attorney said, he's not doing nothing wrong, Peterson recalled, (laughs) visibly pleased by the memory of getting the green light to carry on with his young love whom he clearly intended to marry as soon as he was legally free of Savio.
0: And I was going to say, isn't he also married? So isn't that... Yeah,
1: he's also already married. Oh my God, what a scumbag. Stacy, who had suffered through a childhood and adolescence chock full of tragedy, food insecurity, and a lack of consistency, was drawn to the charming older man who could offer her financial security and stability. I mean he picked a good target. I mean she she's also really beautiful. Stacy's like this blonde with these big beautiful brown eyes. She looks so sweet and yeah. clearly she was just looking for something that was going to be stable and like you look at somebody who's a police sergeant and you think this is one of the good guys. This is this is somebody who's established his life. This is somebody who wants to take care of me. This is somebody who can protect me, you know? Did she know he was married? Uh, yes, she did. Yeah. Um, he told her he was already separated. He told her the tale is old as time, which is we are already separated and we are just working out the financial aspect of our divorce. You know, that old story. Yeah. Also like, who was, who was that quote from? They said they ain't doing nothing wrong. Oh, well, it's Drew Peterson saying that that's what the state's attorney said. Okay. Yeah. So We're he not is the brightest he is,
0: crayon in the box. No, he's not.
1: Yeah. No, the you, should tool watch, in the shed. you should watch some interviews with this guy. Cause he's like a real Chicago piece of work over here. I can't do the accent. That was like New York or something. It's like SNL skit, like the bears, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, my,
1: my friends like
0: teased my Chicago accent out of me in you Ohio. Have
1: no accent now. Mm-hmm. I have that. You most... get a little Cali creep every once in a while, but that's only in certain words. Yeah. And I've also lived here the longest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it makes sense why she'd be attracted to this guy, even though he's a disgusting dirtbag. Uh, he was. Like, when he was wooing her, he did, he pulled out, like, all the stops. He bought Stacy a Pontiac Grand Prix. He oh. set her up in her own apartment and he oh. furnished it for her. Yeah, so he was like, baby, I'm going to take care of you, like, from the get. Naive and swept away in the romance, Stacy later admitted to her friend and neighbor, Sharon, that she would often sneak into the basement of the home Drew shared with Kathy and have sex with him while his wife and young sons slept upstairs. That is
0: horrifying.
1: Horrifying. And you know what's crazy about that? Is that sneaking into somebody's basement to have sex is like a totally normal 17-year-old thing to do. It is not a normal 47-year-old thing to do. Yeah. So like she did not know any better in this situation. This guy is 30 years older than her. Like we said, almost three times her age how old are you kids so he has kids older than her from his first marriage older than Stacy and then at this point I think I think his younger kids were like maybe uh like seven or eight seven or eight so he has like little kids too you know Wow. Yeah, so Kathleen and Drew had been married for about 9 years when Drew s- struck up the affair with the 17-year-old. They had two sons who were under 9 and Drew had two grown sons, like I said, both older than Stacy from his first marriage. Kathy learned of his affair with Stacy from an anonymous note and finally began separation proceedings, but it wasn't the first time she had caught Drew cheating. Only a few years before Stacy, she had uncovered an ongoing relationship with another young woman named Heather by perusing Drew's cell phone records and noticing that there was like a lot of texts and calls the same number. Yeah. Kathy herself had also become involved with Drew while he was still married to wife number two. Yeah, it's a little bit of a pattern. Yeah, it's kind of like how he gets out of the relationship is like how he gets into the relationship is how he gets out too, baby.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, like, I feel like that's always such a red flag
1: when such a red flag. I think like one out of a hundred couples that start without infidelity make it work. I like that um, statistic that you just pulled out of your fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I am talking completely out of my ass. Like, like I think that like when people are having affairs, they cling to this like my cousin's sister had an affair with a guy, now they've been married for thirty years. You know, they're all like, yeah, they're soulmates. This, they're soulmates. There's one person I know. We're soulmates too. We're gonna make it. It's like ninety nine times out of a hundred, he's gonna cheat on you too. Sorry, <laughs> Dirty dog Drew absolutely delighted in his new May-December romance, or seeing as she was so young, maybe it's more like a February-December romance here. He told the following to author and journalist Joe Hosey. Drew fondly recalled the joy he felt with Stacy and her antics to attract attention to them and leave onlookers scratching their heads about their age difference. For example, Stacy would grab him in public and kiss him passionately, then earnestly ask, do I kiss the best of all my sisters? Okay, he, I just like <laughs> literally threw up. <laughs> and he was momentarily speechless because she was vomiting in her mouth.
0: Oh, um, oh my God,
1: that is so twisted. Why would you ever say that? And I also don't know if she ever did or if drew because he said all this after she was missing if he is putting words in her mouth of things that he thinks were funny or i mean she could have she could have just you know had a a funny sense of humor and this was like her way of dealing with age difference
0: he would think that is funny as a grown man too i mean there's obviously something like really fucking wrong with this guy
1: really wrong because it goes on it was not the only way they turned their father-daughter age difference into a game in the supermarket. Stacy sometimes acted like she was trying to get him to buy alcohol for her and the friends she had left outside, loudly yeah, badgering him, him to because she's not fucking yeah, she, twenty-one. She, she wouldn't need him to. That wasn't exactly that's a not game. An act. That's, that's, that's just <laughs> the truth. That's, I, I can't buy this booze. Yeah, she'd say, Come on, all the kids are waiting in the parking lot, Peterson recalled, smiling at the memory. And then this one grossed me out the most. He even owned a ceramic figurine of a cop and a little girl, which he displayed on a shelf behind his desk. He pointed it out and quipped, That was me and Stacy in 1988 when Stacy would have been four years old to his 34. It's disturbing. That is so disgusting and he would tell people that after she's missing too like this is this is all of these interviews are happening after stacy is missing and these are things that he is fondly recalling to journalists
0: yeah how does he think this is going to help him
1: i i don't know i think he's just he liked the attention he liked he liked courting the media he was what having does a good this guy time. look like uh, <laughs> He just looks like he literally looks like a red-faced old alcoholic. (sighs) Do you see him? With a mustache. The the tomato with a mustache? (laughs) Yeah. And he's got gray hair. I mean, it's not like this was like, yeah, he's 47, but he looks like 35. This is not the case. It's like he's forty seven, but he looks sixty five. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's like mistaking you guys as like. It's like, does he look good couple. for his age? No, he he looks bad for his age. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's real bad. Actually, yeah, yeah. Drew oh. Peterson, not a looker. Although the the funniest thing, I didn't get to watch it because I didn't have time, and I also like go to bed at eight thirty these days. Um. Is that Rob Lowe played him in the Lifetime movie. Oh, come on. Come on.
0: That's just, he must have been so jazzed about it. (laughs) Didn't Rob Lowe, like, have an affair with a child, though?
1: You know, I think he got in trouble when he was, like, in his early 20s for being in a hot tub with, like, a 15-year-old, right? Uh, I think it was something worse. Let me look. Worse than that? Oh, God, I like Rob Lowe. Don't tell me that. No, I love
0: Rob Lowe, too, but, like, maybe they were, like, method acting? (laughs)
1: <laughs> He's like I can relate to this guy. <laughs> he has since been married for a very long time, and I mean that doesn't make your sins go away. But still, no, it wasn't. It wasn't as bad as I remember.
0: It's just it was bad because it was I think the like the nineties when it or it, it was, was in 80- Rat Pack, Brat Pack <laughs> era, nineteen eighty eight. Um, it was a consensual sex tape with a sixteen year old girl.
1: When he was Ooh, 24. how old was he? 24. Ooh, don't like that. Don't yeah. like that. Yeah. Ooh, God. Card him. <laughs> Card him before you ball him. It's like, have you seen a 16-year-old? They're children. Yeah, they are children. They're I can't.
0: children. Ooh. So, yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe that was, was
1: actually was... casted correctly, Jessica. <laughs> maybe it was Andrea. <laughs> Oh my god. So, by late April 2002, Drew had moved out of the home he shared with Kathleen, and he set up house just down the street with his new teenage fiance. Yeah, you don't Drew, you don't go far in the suburbs of Chicago. You kind of stay. But the, still, come on. Like five houses down, that's just rubbing it in. Yep. So Drew claimed it was so he could stay close to his sons, but mm-hmm. Kathy's friends and family said it was just to torture his third wife. Stacy and Drew would often rollerblade, rollerblading. That's very <laughs> 90s. Very um, spontaneous. Or ride bikes past Kathy's home, making sure to put on a big public display of affection in front of her house. That's Gross. So, so vindictive for no reason. Like, she's the injured party in this. Why are you doing that, you know? She's not injured yet. Well, it's about to be. What could have been a fairly run-of-the-mill divorce escalated into World War Three. each side becoming more and more hostile. Kathleen called the police 18 times on her estranged husband, even receiving a restraining order after Drew threatened her with his service weapon and held her hostage in their former home together. On another occasion, Kathy attempted to remove a video camera from Stacy's hands while Stacy recorded her. And when she tried to like take the camera away from Stacy, Drew got out of the truck they had been in, threw Kathleen to the ground, spraining her wrist in the process, and arrested her despite the fact that he was off duty at the time.
0: Definitely no abuse of power here.
1: Right? No
0: like authority
1: problem. It's insane. Stacy became pregnant and gave birth to Anthony, their first child, when she was only 18 years old. And Drew was still legally married to Kathy, which of Ew. course only made situations more acrimonious, you know. In a rush to get the marriage dissolved, the divorce was bifurcated, which is A pretty unique process, legal process, that means that the marriage is legally ended and separated, but the financial side of the proceedings and the division of property are still to be decided. So they allowed him to bifurcate this divorce so that he could legally marry his, you know, I think at the time pregnant fiance, but that means that the financial stuff was still not worked out. Eight days after the legal divorce, Stacey and Drew married on October 18th, 2003. Stacy was 19 and Drew 49. Uh, literally, Vom. So Vom. Also, she should have been in college. She should have been dating boys her own age. She should have been like, you know, having fun, not marrying this guy. And then getting pregnant again, daughter Lacey, who was named for her sister who passed, She was born in 2005. She is barely 21 with two little kids and a 51-year-old husband in 2005. Good thing she can start drinking. (laughs) Yeah, at least she can start drinking legally here. (laughs) Oh, man, she's going to need it. Following the birth of Lacey, encouraged by Drew, Stacy embarked on a series of plastic surgery upgrades, including a boob job, LASIK eye surgery, and a tummy tuck. Drew insisted that Stacy had asked for all of the surgeries, but his ex-wives and friends of Kathy claimed it was typical of Drew to call his wives fat or refer to them as dogs and cows when he felt that they had gained weight
0: wow, this guy's such a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. The he husband, like, like after you have a baby and your husband's like, you look like a fucking cow. Um, No,
1: I cannot. Nathaniel would never in a million years. I no. like it's just horrifying. Also, he says later, like when it comes up after she disappears, he's like, oh, she wanted all of those she's like 21 years old, you bounce back, you don't need all of that. It's he was being a, a creep. So like in the interviews, he tries to like, portray himself as this like indulgent, supportive husband being like, of course, she was beautiful. But like, you know, she wanted it for herself. And I would just give her whatever she wanted. But it was more that he wanted his teenager to look like a teenager, you know, it's so gross so gross stacy's friend's eyebrows were raised not only by the unnecessary body work but also because drew was obsessed with following stacy neighbor sharon recalled several times that he would show up while they were visiting or shopping demanding to know who she was with and how much money she was spending if he wasn't exactly by her side drew would be constantly calling and checking up on her Perhaps insecure that his young trophy wife would wise up and move on, or maybe he's just projecting because he cheated on literally everyone. Ugh. So yeah, he's, he's controlling and stalking as well. Meanwhile, in February of 2004, Drew suddenly had one less wife to worry about. Before Drew and Kathy's divorce could be finalized, which would have netted Kathy half of Drew's pension, the $300,000 house, and half of their marital assets, Kathy tragically died by slipping and falling in a bathtub and then drowning. An inquest was conducted and the death was ruled to be an accidental drowning. Mm-hmm. Stacy was her new husband. Mm-hmm. The police force, which he is a member of, investigated, found it to be an accident. Oh and God. the only alibi for where Drew was the evening of Kathy's death was his new wife, Stacy. Fortuitously, Drew could produce the only copy of Kathy's will, which he claimed had not been changed since their acrimonious split, in which he was entitled to everything that Kathy owned. Stacy stepped up as a stepmother, going so far as to adopt Kathy's sons, and Drew Peterson's life was looking pretty darn good. That is, until Sunday, October 28th, 2007 when, according to Drew, Stacy took off, abandoning him and her now four young children. Cassandra Cale, Stacey's sister, attempted to reach Stacy all day on Sunday and Monday, finding it very odd that Stacy wouldn't respond to texts or phone calls. In her mounting desperation, she drove to the Peterson house, where she was met by Kathy and Drew's eldest son, who said, Mom and Dad got into a fight, and now Dad is out looking for her. Cassandra immediately called Drew, who told her that Stacy had called him the night before to inform him she was leaving him for another man. He claimed that she had packed her clothes, including her bikinis, which was like a random thing that he told her sister, taken $25,000 and left her car at Clo International Airport in Bolingbroke, Cassandra knew that her sister would never, ever, ever abandon her children because of the trauma that they went through when their mother left. So she became immediately suspicious of Drew. Obviously. Yeah. Cassandra went to the police. Like she even like tried to go to a different uh, police station in a different jurisdiction because she was so scared of going to the Bolingbrook police because he obviously was a sergeant there. But they ended up directing her back to Bolingbrook. What year did Kathy die? Kathy died in 2004. So this is only three years later. It's like, it ends up being like three and a half years altogether. Supposedly, Drew went to pick up Stacy's car from where she allegedly told him he would find it. That area of Clo, the airport, was supposed to be covered by security cameras, but police found that the security camera that was supposed to cover that area of the parking lot had been broken for ages and never been fixed. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So coming only three and a half years after his third wife's supposedly accidental death, the police finally stopped giving Drew a pass and began an investigation into him for Stacy's disappearance. They did do a cursory search of the home, but there was nothing that was obviously suspicious. The only thing that aroused their curiosity is that Drew allowed them to search the home and his Denali, but not Stacy's Grand Prix for some reason. In interviews with the police and with the media, Drew sticks to his story that Stacy left him for another man. When pressed to who this other man could be, Drew reveals that he believed Stacy was having an affair with an old acquaintance named Scott Rossetto. When interviewed, Scott says that in early October, Stacy had called him out of the blue, so they'd only been talking for a couple weeks at this point. They had known each other six years prior. In fact, Stacy had dated his twin brother. So they didn't know each other very well. He was aware that Stacy was married and the friendship was platonic. He said Stacy mostly wanted someone to talk to about her disintegrating marriage. She told Scott she was pursuing divorce. Scott claims that Stacy was frustrated with Drew's controlling ways and also scared of him. Scott also became scared of Drew as well after he appeared unexpectedly in a diner where Stacy and Scott were having dinner one night. Exactly a week before Stacy disappeared. Oh wow. So, yeah, he had been somehow tracking her. I don't know the ins and outs of how. Um, and he pulled up to the diner, like with his sirens blaring in in uniform while he's like on duty, and like rolled in and sat down across from Scott, like next to Stacy in the booth, and was like basically who the fuck are you do you know she this is my wife tracking her car yeah he was tracking her for sure yeah yeah and he was like how would you feel if your wife was like talking to other guys and stuff he took scott's license and went back to the cop car to run it what total total abuse of power obviously but also like he's trying to intimidate scott scott's like Look, I've known your wife for a really long time. Like we we fell out of touch. Like we're just friends. We're just fr- having a friendly dinner here. Yeah, there's buddy. nothing wrong with having a fucking friend. They're in public at a diner, just talking and like drinking coffee. So like there was nothing. It wasn't even like romantic. They're not even having like in a romantic candlelight dinner over wine here. You know? Or I was gonna say, or booze at all? Or at a booze, they're drinking coffee. And so. Scott claimed that this episode really spooked him and he kind of cooled things down with Stacy, but his text messages that were recovered by the police suggested the opposite. In fact, in the last couple of days before Stacy went missing, the two had exchanged flirty, even kind of sexual texts. Even more interesting is that Stacy's phone had pinged off of a cell tower near Scott's house when she allegedly placed that call to Drew the evening she went missing. So like when he said that she called to tell him she was leaving him for another man, reportedly her phone was near Scott's house.
0: Yeah, which Drew knows where that is because he ran his license. Mm -hmm,
1: Exactly. You smart little cookie. While the cops were keeping both Drew and Scott within their sights, they received a call from the FBI with bombshell testimony from Thomas Morphy, Drew's stepbrother, who had just come out of a coma following his suicide attempt. Oh, no. Yeah. Poor Thomas. On Sunday, October 28th, Thomas had been enjoying a few drinks and watching the Bears-Lions football game. Drew the Bears. Had- the Bears. Drew had called him around 5 p.m. and insisted on meeting him at a Starbucks in Brook at 7 p.m., telling Thomas he needed some help. So Drew had always been kind of the more successful one and Thomas more of a screw up. And Drew was kind of like would lend him money. He would help him get jobs. At the time, Thomas was out of work. And so Drew was like telling him that he was going to help him get a job at this department store. So Thomas was like a little drunk, but he was happy to do it because, you know, Drew had helped him out so much in his life. So he figured like the coffee would give him a boost from the day drinking and he agreed to meet him at 7 p.m. So when they did get together, Drew bought him a coffee and told him he thought Stacy might be planning to leave him. Thomas was completely shocked and Drew moved on to asking for his favor quickly next. This is what happened according to Thomas Morphy's account to the authorities and author Joe Hosey. So he said that Peterson said, I need you to wait here for a little while. Then he reached into his jacket, pulled out a cell phone and handed it to Morphe. Take this. Whatever happens, don't answer it. Just stay here. Don't fall asleep. Get another coffee, whatever. Just don't leave and don't answer the phone. And don't call anybody either. Think you can handle that? Yeah, Drew. Peterson left. Morphe studied the phone. It was a nice one, but Morphe did not want to mess with it. He did not want to screw up. He sat there and tried to stay awake. After about half an hour, a jolting ring made Morphe drop the phone in his lap. When he picked it up, he saw the caller ID. Stacy. Morphe stared at the phone until it stopped ringing. (laughs) He didn't know what was going on, but suddenly he wasn't so sleepy. Another half hour passed before Peterson reappeared. When Morphe asked where he had gone, Peterson told him that he just went to run an errand. Morphy handed back the phone. Your wife called. Peterson put the phone in his pocket without looking at it. I know, he said. You did a good job. Out in the parking lot, Peterson said, give me a call tomorrow. I might have something on that Myers thing. He got in his GMC Denali and drove off. A few hours later, he called Morphy again. You think you can come over here? I need a hand moving something. The Denali and the Grand Prix are in the driveway, so just park in front. You're all right to drive, right? So this is really late at night now. We're like talking around midnight. Okay. Same night. Same night that he was at the Starbucks. Okay. Morphe put on his jacket and headed for the door. He told his girlfriend, Cheryl, he'd be back in a minute. He had to go to Drew's. When he got to the Peterson's house, his stepbrother opened the front door before Morphe had a chance to ring the bell. As Morphy stepped inside, Peterson glanced around the sleepy cul-de-sac. It was a few days before Halloween. The air was crisp, the house almost dark as the street. The kids were sleeping, said Peterson, and Stacy was out with her sister. Morphy thought that was strange since both cars were parked in the driveway. Maybe Stacy's sister had picked her up from the house. Morphy followed Peterson upstairs and into the bedroom. He noticed a blue plastic barrel next to the bed. The barrel, barrel? it's a barrel next to the bed the barrel was tightly sealed and it had two plugged holes in its lid maybe openings for a pump it looked a little smaller than a 55 gallon drum peterson squatted and put his fingers under the edge of the barrel's bottom i'll tip it he said you take it from the top he pushed the barrel over and morphy accepted its weight it was warm against his hands Oh, my God. Peterson backed out of the bedroom and toward the stairs. Morphe walked after, holding up his end. The barrel was not very heavy, and now Peterson bore all of its weight as he stepped backward down the stairs. Morphe asked what was in the barrel. Chlorine, Peterson said. (laughs) Chlorine? (laughs) Chlorine? chlorine morphy thought it was strange that peterson would have a barrel of chlorine for his swimming pool all the way upstairs next to his bed you think i was gonna say it'd be even better if he didn't have a pool but (laughs) that would be so much better (laughs) he wondered for what reason it needed to be moved so late on a sunday night not to mention why it felt warmer than the air in the room But he didn't ask any of these questions. He told himself to just believe his stepbrother to go along with it and show himself capable of helping with a simple task. Once downstairs, they carried the barrel through the attached garage and out to the driveway where Peterson set it down to open the back of his Denali. The two men hoisted the barrel into the car. Peterson wedged a piece of wood against it to keep it from rolling around. Well, I better get this out of here, he said. Where are you going, Morphy asked. I know a guy who wants to buy some chlorine, Peterson said. Now? At midnight on Sunday night, he really needs this chlorine? <gasps> he wants it pretty bad. Oh. Peterson pulled a wad of bills out of his pocket and palmed it into Morphy's hand. Ah, Drew, come on, Morphy protested. You don't have to. Gotta run, Peterson said, as he climbed into his Denali and closed the garage door from inside his car. Morphe watched the door go down and then he drove home.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: At least you didn't like tell him. I know. I mean, it was so I feel bad for this guy. I feel like, you know, obviously the best thing he could have done at this point is to immediately have called the police and been like, he's driving this way in this car. Check what's in the backseat, right? Yeah. But I think he had been drinking all day. I think he was confused. He was like, you know, obviously questioning what really happened in his head. It had really- a sergeant. There's no he, it doesn't matter officer. who you call. It's his stepbrother yeah. who had always helped him out in life. So the he- only people you can talk to
0: are the FBI, which is who he said the story to, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, that's like the
0: only like You can't go, what are you going to do, go go to the Bolingbroke Police Department? To his
1: co-worker, yeah, to his colleagues. No. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so instead he went home, he poured himself several drinks, and he began to put the pieces together. He later would not remember stumbling over to Walter's house, though he would recall attempting suicide the next day. Later, he would tell author Joe, it still kills me. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I could take back that day. I know, but, like, how is he, this, like,
0: that's, like, the fact that, like, this dude's, Drew's actions, like, directly affected, like, this guy, too, who, like, he didn't kill, but he did kill a part of him.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank goodness he pulled through because they wouldn't have had this testimony for Stacy to get justice for Kathleen, yeah. Yeah. but also for himself. It would have been another victim of Drew Peterson. And he's he just gave, taking care of all the kids. Uh, I guess the older kids. So his like kids with Kathy at this point were teenagers. So they were home with the other littler kids. Yeah. So ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He gave his full statement to the police in exchange for immunity, which I think is totally fair, like that he not get prosecuted for helping, you know, hide a body. Yeah. When he didn't even know that and he didn't what know he yeah. what was going on. And immediately upon waking up, he told his story to the FBI. Yeah. From Thomas's statements and what they could infer from Drew and Scott, the police came up with a working theory of what happened to Stacy. So the timeline's like not exact, but this is generally what they think happened. Drew had left work early that day, potentially surprising Stacy, who was texting Scott, infuriated by the racy texts and the admission of plans to leave him because Stacy had actually already consulted a divorce attorney at this time. Drew became enraged and killed Stacy in their bedroom. So we don't know necessarily if he killed her before or after the Starbucks thing. But eventually he stuffed her in the blue barrel. At some point, he drove Stacy's phone to near Scott's residence to call his own phone, which was obviously when Thomas Morphys, you know, was at the Starbucks. And it might have happened in like a park right outside the Starbucks. Um, he might have been like wandering around outside, but it's near the Starbucks. Obviously, the idea was to set up Scott for the murder, clearly. Afterwards, he called Thomas to remove Stacy's body under the cover of darkness. Authorities believed that Drew would have dumped the body near Scott's home to further implicate him. So they began to search the surrounding wooded areas and bodies of water, but they never found her. They never found the bin? Never found the, the barrel. Yeah. To this day, they haven't found her. Whoa. Yeah, it's devastating. So while we ponder that, and while the cops are closing in on one of their own, let's rewind and talk about who this piece of shit is. Drew Walter Peterson was born January 5th, 1954, in the suburbs of Chicago, where he attended Willowbrook High School in Villa Park, Illinois. This is where Drew would meet his first wife, Carol Hamilton, now Carol Brown. After high school, he joined the U.S. Army and trained as a military police officer. He married Carol at the age of 20 in 1974 when Carol was only 17. Hmm. That's, this is the definition of uh, <laughs> I keep getting older and they stay the same age. So the couple had two sons named Eric and Steven. Carol would later go on to tell Good Morning America that there weren't any signs of violence or controlling behavior in their young marriage, just lots and lots of cheating. Eventually, Drew's repeated infidelities tore them apart and the couple divorced in 1980. Both parties chalked up the failure of their marriage on getting married too young and, of course, infidelity. Drew was assigned to the Metropolitan Area Narcotics Squad in 1978 and even received the Police Officer of the Year Award from the department in 1979. In 1982, Drew married Vicki Connolly, a 23-year-old single mother, five years Drew Jr. So this is starting a trend. Like his first wife was only three years younger. This wife is five years younger. The next wife will be 10 years younger. And then the last is 30 years younger. Wow. Also, before he was arrested, he was apparently engaged to a 23-year-old while he was, like, getting caught for killing his wives. Oh, my God. And he was yeah, probably this, close to 53. Yeah, exactly. hmm This scumbag. guy, he's such a scumbag. So Drew and Vicky would make it work for nearly a decade, but the marriage was not a happy one. Vicky declined to speak to Joe Hosey in 2007 after Stacy's disappearance because she said she was still in fear of her life and felt tremendous PTSD from the time she spent married to Drew. Wow. Yeah. She also told the police that at several times during their marriage, Drew threatened to kill her and, quote, make it look like an accident. Oh. Mm-hmm. thanks for pitching that one right to us <laughs> yeah vicky's daughter lisa lived with drew as her stepfather from the ages of 8 to 17 and told greta van Susteren that drew was extremely strict not a very nice person and extreme with punishments including assaulting her with a belt for many years when he felt she misbehaved wow not even his own daughter not even his own kid that's Lisa also said that Peterson was abusive and controlling with her mother, stalking her and watching every move she made, a behavior that obviously continued in his subsequent marriages. Mm-hmm. During his second marriage to Vicky in 1985, Drew was fired from the Brook PD for running an unauthorized undercover operation while working for the narcotics squad. Yeah, you'll see. We'll get into this. Basically, he pulled Vicky's brother into what he claimed was an undercover drug operation meant to make Drew look like a dirty cop who was ready to cash in on his police and underworld connections. Here's what Drew, but also the drug dealer that was supposedly involved in the plan, told author Joe Hosey about it. So it, it sounds like to me he did not turn in an investigative report on this undercover operation until he was caught. The investigative report Peterson turned in on his dealings with Rock, that's the drug dealer, from April 28, 1985 to May 3, 1985, starts with Peterson making plans with Jerry O'Neill, the brother of his second wife, for the purpose of purchasing cocaine from Anthony Rock. Peterson said he hoped to lure Rock into selling him cocaine by convincing him he was a dirty cop. In his report, Peterson said he told Rock that he was tired of watching everyone else get rich and that he now had an entire system set up to move cocaine. And if anybody could help him, it would be Rock. The whole dirty cop ruse, Peterson later explained to me, that's the author, was why he took his ex-brother-in-law along to set Rock up. O'Neill, with whom Peterson remained close even after divorcing O'Neill's sister, was described in Peterson's report as a member in good standing of the Hell's Henchman Motorcycle Gang. Pe- Peterson told me he brought O'Neill with him in hopes of appearing more genuinely criminal. Their oh, adversarial... Uh Uh-huh, their adversarial occupations notwithstanding, Peterson and O'Neill's friendship ended only with O'Neill's getting his face shot off in Cook County, Illinois. Yikes. During during this exchange? Not not during this exchange, it was after, yeah. Okay. (laughs) The man or men who gunned him down have never been brought to justice. That's just a little side note. A local police officer who worked in an undercover narcotics unit said, enlisting one civilian brother-in-law for assistance in a solo drug operation is highly unusual. Nonetheless, Peterson managed to set up a meeting with Rock. Peterson said he proposed a business arrangement with Rock in which he would buy cocaine from him in exchange for 20% of the front and 10% of what was sold afterward. In his report, Peterson said he agreed, but told Rock he would look for a better connection elsewhere once it had started rock so he talked to also to this drug dealer guy rock has seen peterson's report and told me it was dead on accurate just opposite in terms of the business arrangement rock <sighs> told me peterson approached him with a plan in which peterson would supply rock with cocaine ripped off from his drug raids with the narcotics <gasps> squad i Ex- knew it was going to be something like that hmm expecting Rock to move it and surrender a percentage of his net sales. Rock told me he was not interested in Peterson's scheme. In other words, according to Rock, there was no dirty cop pretense at all. Peterson genuinely wanted to sell drugs through Rock. He was truly just a dirty cop. A dirty drug dealing cop. Dirty, cheating, drug dealing, teenage boinking cop. Wow. Yeah, he's not. There is like no world in which we can pretend this is a good guy. Wow. Did they end up prosecuting Rock? Uh, I don't know what happened to Rock, to be honest. But it seems like at first, at least the police commissioner was going after Drew. Um, He was fired and indicted, but later the charges were dropped and Drew was allowed to regain his job. There was a counter lawsuit that Drew and his attorneys filed against the state. And it seems like to me, Drew had some dirt on something that was going on with the police. Yeah. He's like blackmailing them. Exactly. So somehow through whatever he knew or he got away with it and he got his job back. Meanwhile, Drew was also keeping busy cheating constantly on Vicky Vicky was worn down by the constant abuse and infidelity, but terrified of leaving Drew fearing violent repercussions. Luckily for Vicky, Drew eventually became so enamored with one of his affair partners, Kathy Savio, that he divorced Vicky. Kathleen Savio was a beautiful, funny, kind 28-year-old bookkeeper when she met and was wooed by 38-year-old Drew Peterson. Naturally, again, he told Kathy he was already separated from Vicky. So Kathy never suspected she was the other woman. That is until years later when she began discovering Drew's other, other woman.
0: Wow. So yeah, so she wasn't like sneaking around in the basement. No, she
1: wasn't like going into his house and stuff. Like he convinced him that they were like pretty thoroughly done by then. Drew and Kathy were married in 1992, only two months after Drew's divorce from Vicky was finalized. Kathy and Drew had two sons in quick succession, Thomas in 1993 and Christopher in 1994. The marriage, just like Drew's previous marriages, was plagued with abuse and infidelity. Less than a year into marriage, Kathy was taken to the emergency room after Drew attacked her with a dining room table. What? Yes, it was unclear to me whether he like took her head and slammed it into a dining room table or whether he like threw a dining room table at her. It just said he was, she he was, she was attacked with a dining room table. Wow. Yeah, and their baby, um, their first son was only four months old when he assaulted her this way. Oh. So her sister forced her to press charges but claimed that the police did nothing and instead protected one of their own when her sister tried to, like, make it a deal. Kathy's sister said that there was a lot more violence in the home, but Kathy failed to report any of it because she knew it would go nowhere and only endanger, you know, her situation with Drew.
0: Yeah, and, like, she's probably thinking about the kids and everything, too, at that
1: point. Exactly. Just like he had with Vicky, Drew reportedly often told Kathy that he could, quote, kill her and make it look like an accident, which is exactly what he did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing he's ever been honest about. Lacking Stacy's body, the cops were at an impasse at how to prosecute him for killing his fourth wife. They finally decided to reopen the investigation into Kathy Savio's mysterious death, much to the relief of her family and friends who knew all along that he had killed her. Yeah. Dr. Larry Bloom, a pathologist, was called in to perform a new autopsy on Kathy's exhumed body and determined conclusively that Kathleen's death had been a homicide and not an accidental drowning, as previously suspected. So what did they find that was different than when they did the... Uh, For starters, Kathleen had no drugs and alcohol in her system that would make her more likely to accidentally fall or drown, Um, She was covered with bruises that indicated a struggle, particularly to her back and sides. She also had a two-inch straight-line laceration to the back of her head. And they had originally said, oh, she has this cut on the back of her head because she slipped and fell and hit her head on the bath. Okay. But if you look at the crime scene photos and study the crime scene, the bath was actually oval shaped and everything, all of the like edges were very soft and round. Yeah. I, that's
0: what I don't mean. Like, I don't understand why they didn't th- consider a homicide more.
1: Well, we'll get in, we'll get into it a little bit. More. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So it was impossible that the soft slope of the bathtub edge could have caused that laceration, um, nor was there any blood transfer. If she had cut open her head on the bath, there would obviously have been blood on the bathroom, which there wasn't. The Also, like, the way she f- was, the position of her body was face down and with her feet jammed against the sides of the tub, which was completely inconsistent with the position of somebody who had accidentally slipped and fallen backwards, clearly. yeah. So Bloom
0: Contended. ultimately. He did a horrible job making it look like an accident. A
1: horrible job. So he didn't keep his word. No. Well, he made it look like an accident, just a very bad accident, like a, a poorly staged accident. Bloom contended what was more likely was that the murderer had struggled with Kathleen eventually gripping her around the sides from the back in a bear hug style pickup and forcing her into the bathroom. He then pushed her head into the toilet where he drowned her. And what caused that two inch laceration was her head hitting the back rim of the toilet bowl, which completely matched up if you took like the size of Kathleen's body and head an account to the toilet that was in the bathroom. Okay. After that, he obviously placed the body in the bathtub to create the illusion of an accident, albeit, like we've said, quite poorly. With the new autopsy report and statements made that shed light on Drew's shaky alibi for the night of Kathleen's murder, we'll get into it, but Stacy said some things to people about what she said for his alibi. Drew was finally charged with Kathleen Savio's homicide and was indicted by an Illinois grand jury in May of 2009. After years of delays due to Drew's attorneys fighting to exclude hearsay, namely like a a big portion of this is obviously the new autopsy, but it's a lot based on what Kathy and Stacy said to various friends and family about Drew's behavior and about certain things that happened on the night that Kathy died. And his attorneys were trying to fight those things from being allowed in, saying that they were hearsay. And the judge was like, nope, we're going to allow it. Because obviously those women are dead by his hand. They don't have a voice in this. So they're going to at least hear like testimony from people who swear to what these women said to them, you know? So... It, the the trial didn't start till 2012, nearly five years after Stacy's disappearance and more than eight since Kathy's murder due to all these holdups. And when it finally did start, they allowed the hearsay in, um, but the prosecution was not allowed to introduce Stacy's disappearance into Kathy's murder trial, which of course would make it much harder because they can't establish a pattern there. So this was, Definitely like a threefold challenge at this point. The death had originally been ruled an accident. Two, the there was no physical evidence that definitively tied Drew to the murder due to the mismanagement at the crime scene, of course. And number three, they could not establish a pattern as they could not discuss Stacy outside of the lens of her being his wife at the time of Kathleen's killing. Okay, so this is not exactly a slam dunk case over here. What they definitely had was motive. Drew would stand to lose his house and half of everything else, including his pension, if the financial portion of the divorce had been finalized. Uh, They also had testimony that proved a history of abuse and the chilling threat of killing both Vicky and Kathy and making it look like an accident, as we've heard. Mm Mm-hmm. The defense countered in their opening statements that Kathleen died of an accident, that any reports of violence came during the Petersons' contentious divorce and were fabricated by Kathleen for the sole purpose of gaining more of Drew's financial assets. That's not true, though. The dining room table incident was Yeah, exactly. Way before their divorce. Then they went on to portray Drew as an upstanding family man, a military police vet, and a longtime community servant. Mm. guys i wish you could see andy's (laughs) face right now it's it's sublime it is like like real pissed off nana face is what she's doing she's also like cloaked in a weird blanket right now or something
0: (laughs) it's my sweatshirt but i can't put it on because i don't have cool wireless headphones like you uh
1: So she looked like a really angry Princess Leia with her hair back and her like (laughs) microphone, uh, not microphone, um, headphone buns. Headphone buns. The prosecution called their witnesses first, including Mary Pontarelli, Kathy's neighbor and best friend who had found Kathleen's body in the bath. She testified that Drew reached out to her to check in on his ex, whom he had been unable to reach. Mary and her husband, Steve, went to Kathy's and Drew actually came too, but he told them, he's like, look, I'm going to stay outside. I don't know what's going on in there. And like, I'm her ex-husband. So I'll just like stay out here. You just tell me what's going on. While Steve and Mary waited for the police, you know, obviously they went in, they found her in the bath. While Steve and Mary waited for the police, Mary noticed that the crime scene was suspicious. One, Kathleen's hair was down and wet. When she bathed, she always, always, always put her hair up in like a bun or a high ponytail, as most women do when they take a bath. Yeah. Number two, she was wearing a gold necklace, which seemed unusual because Kathleen always removed her jewelry before bathing or swimming. Like they had been like swimming at each other's houses together or something, and she'd always taken off her jewelry. And number three, there was no robe, towel, or bath mat in the bathroom. I love nosy neighbors. (laughs) I read this to Nathaniel and he's like, do you women really like know how your friends take baths? Like he's like, this seems like very particular information. No, I
0: think she's just smart and has probably, was probably one of the like early true crime fanatics.
1: She's like, wait a second. She's one of us. She's fucking Sherlock over here. She's like, I don't see a towel. I don't I see like a bath mat. I'm really I don't into see Mary. a robe. And like, even with the hair up, hair down thing, whatever, you know? But the fucking fact that there was no towel, bathrobe or bath mat at the scene that she walked in on, she saw it, that she like noted that. I mean, it's amazing that she had the presence of mind to notice it when her best friend is dead, you know? Yep, 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 yep. But Incredible. But yeah, that does doesn't make sense. No no person in the world gets into a bath or a shower without having a towel handy, you know? No. No. So next, Sergeant Patrick Collins, who is not a homicide detective, detailed his experience on the scene and what went wrong in collecting evidence. The scene was never processed as a crime scene and was immediately treated like an accident, losing the later detectives' incredible amounts of forensic evidence, as well as the fact that because it wasn't like treated like a crime scene... Uh, the scene was never secured. So any scant evidence preserved was completely contaminated because they had people just traipsing through the scene back and forth. So crazy. Furthermore, Stacy, who was Drew's only alibi for the time when Kathleen was murdered, was interviewed with Drew present, which of course violates all principles of a police investigation. Drew had asked the police officer conducting the interview if he could sit in to comfort Stacey as a professional courtesy police officer to police officer. Uh, There is no way that should have been allowed. No, that's so weird. So weird and coercive. Dr. Larry Bloom testified to the forensic findings that confirmed a homicide and a close friend of Kathy's from college, a woman named Mary Parks, testified that she often saw bruises on Kathy from Drew and that Kathy reportedly had said to her um, that when Drew was assaulting her, he had once said, why won't you just die? Oh, that's nice. That's, That's exactly the sweet nothings you want your husband to whisper to you. The most incriminating testimony, however, came from a surprising source, Pastor Neil Shore. Pastor Neil had been seeing Drew and Stacy for marriage counseling and received an emotional call from Stacy in August of 2007, asking if they could meet and talk about something that was weighing on her. The two met for an impromptu counseling session at a Starbucks, and Stacy told Neil a chilling tale. She said that the night of Kathleen's murder, Drew was not home and was unreachable by phone. When he did finally come home, he was dressed head to toe in black and was putting women's clothing in the washing machine. And then he removed his own clothing to add to the load. Stacy asked where he had been and what he had done, and Drew had reportedly told her, you know what I did, and insinuated that Kathleen would no longer be bothering them. He then forced Stacy to stay up all night while he coached her on what to say to the police so he could get away with the perfect crime and he nearly did. Yikes. Stacy felt tremendous guilt at lying to the police and helping to cover up Kathleen's murder. She was also preparing to leave Drew and was scared at his reaction. It's just so this was 2 months before her murder and disappearance, her disappearance and for sure murder. And it just, I just wish she, and I understand it. When you're dealing with a police officer, you cannot trust the police. But if she had gone to someone, to something, she could have saved her own life. Or if the pastor had reported it to the police, maybe. Yeah. But it's privileged communication and she didn't want to report it. So just, it's devastating to think that she could still be alive. And those children could still have a mother. Privileged information though, isn't like, do you mean
0: on the church's behalf, on the pastor's behalf? On the pastor's behalf. Like, But isn't um, it like when there's actual
1: like crime or
0: murder involved, isn't I, it? Are they- I
1: don't think. So I know like um, doctors and therapists are are mandatory reporters, I believe. Like I believe that they have to report it. I don't think priests do. I don't think priests and pastors and religious people who take confessions, I don't think they have to. I think they're exempt because of religious rights. Yeah. I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's my understanding at least. So the prosecution rested and the defense brought in their witnesses. They had a state police officer who claimed that Drew had no bruises, scratches, or DNA under his fingernails to suggest that there had been a struggle. They brought in Kathy's boyfriend at the time of the murder who testified to having doggy-style sex with Kathleen two days before her death. So they're trying to say that those bruises that were in the forensic report, the ones that were on her sides, her back, and her knees, were from sex two days before the murder. The guy didn't say that she was bruised. He just admitted that they had had doggy-style sex. That's all.
0: You don't get bruised from having doggy styles. No,
1: you get bruised by somebody assaulting you and drowning you in a toilet, you know? Yeah. And So Harry Smith also um, was a witness. Um, he is a divorce attorney who Stacey had hired, and he testified that she had asked him if she could get more money from Drew in the divorce if she confessed to the police that she knew Drew had killed Kathy. So this backfired spectacularly this was the defense's witness they brought this guy in their point was to like say that stacy was so financially motivated that she was willing to lie to the authorities to quote get more money but instead especially paired with pastor neil's testimony the jury just heard that drew killed kath Kathleen you know that's all they heard yeah yeah, the the defense attorneys, like, there's a couple of them on his team that are on the, the ID doc. And they're just like, yeah, this was a really bad idea. <laughs> they're like, this backfired in our faces a lot. Like, they're like, full on just, yeah, we are bad. <laughs> we fucked up. <laughs> but if they like, intentionally did it. That would be great. Well, it's so funny. I'll, ment- uh, I'll mention this later, but there's a part in the trial where Drew is acting so insane and they have like the uh, his own attorney doing the talking head on the dock and he's like, he's pathetic. <laughs> it's like they did not like their own client here. <laughs> That's crazy. After closing arguments, the jury deliberated for 14 hours and they found Drew guilty of first degree murder. Yay. For both or for Kathy? Just for Kathy. They have okay. never been able to try him for Stacy's death because her body has never been found. That is so fucked. So fucked. During sentencing, Drew went completely bananas. He threatened the state's attorney, Jim Glasgow, and he also screamed at the top of his lungs several times, I did not kill Kathleen. Like he was full on just off his rocker Um, he ended up getting sentenced to 38 years in prison that's it that's it but don't worry there's more we're not done here because what do megalomaniacal sociopathic men love to do when they're behind bars think um Bob Bashara and the father of the year dirtbag guy
0: What's their favorite when he thing? Tried, like he tried to kill other people from <laughs> jail. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they love, a, when men lose, these types of men who are very controlling lose control. They try to control the situation from prison and it always backfires. So yes, he tried to hire a hitman from prison to kill the state's attorney, Jim Glasgow. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. That's a real dumb one. That's a real dumb dumb. In August 2014, an inmate named Antonio the Beast Smith, a gang member with Satan's Disciples, befriended Drew over several basketball games. The two men grew close enough that Drew brought Antonio into his confidence. He told him that Jim Glasgow, the state's attorney who prosecuted him, was the entire reason that he was in prison, and he was blocking all of his appeals. So he wanted Antonio to help him arrange a hit to get Glasgow out of the picture in which then he thought his appeals would go through and he could potentially get out of prison. Antonio went straight to the authorities and was entirely truthful, smart, and seemingly reliable. He was asked to wear a wire and was promised no time off his sentence in exchange for his participation. So he just did this out of
0: uh
1: the goodness of his heart, although I'm sure that parole boards would look favorably upon this obviously no yeah
0: that's i mean that's great
1: mm-hmm. but yeah like even in the trial they can't say well he just did it to get time off because he didn't get any time off for this that's almost better it's a lot better it's a very strong case for yeah. the uh for the state's attorney as a part of the ruse antonio told peterson he had arranged for his uncle to kill glasgow by christmas 2014 And this is from the recording. I told him what you said, that it's the green light on it, that it's basically go ahead and kill him, Smith said in the November 15th, 2014 recording. That's what you wanted, right? It ain't no turning back. Okay, all right, I'm in, Peterson responded. From the first time we talked about it, there was no turning back. If I get some booze in here, we'll celebrate that night. Ew. Mm. Do you think he kept the
0: mustache? (laughs)
1: I don't know. I don't know. I actually, you know what? I haven't looked at like any later mug shots or anything of his. So I'll have to look it up when we uh, go to do the Instagram. (laughs) Drew Peterson was charged with solicitation for murder and solicitation of murder for hire. And this time it took a jury only one single hour to declare him guilty on both charges. <laughs> On July 29th, 2016, Drew was sentenced to an additional 40 years in prison. Given that he's 67 now, I do not think he'll ever see the light of day. Um, he keeps appealing and the court keeps saying, "Nope, no thank you." Bye, bye. Drew also allegedly told Antonio Smith that he had in fact killed Stacy and dumped her body in Lake Michigan. Oh, no. I mean, Lake Michigan's basically an ocean. It is. Stacy's case remains open, and at the time of this recording, sadly, her body has still not been recovered. Even though he admitted it, they can't... Well, he wasn't caught on tape admitting that. He said it to Antonio, but there was no proof. That would definitely be hearsay. Stacy's children are being raised by his eldest son, Stephen, who suffered greatly at the fallout from his father's crimes. He believes his father is guilty of killing both Kathy and Stacy. Oh, God, that's Steven, so hard to deal with. Oh, can you imagine? No. No. Stephen lost his marriage and job in the wake of the two public trials because he was also a police officer. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And apparently Drew had come to him before he knew about Stacy and stored some guns at his house. So when the cops came to find the weapons, they were like, you were harboring these for a fugitive and you are not allowed to be a police officer anymore, which I totally understand. But he said- He didn't know, did he? He said he he 100% said he didn't know.
0: I don't think that's fair. Yeah.
1: So he lost his marriage. He lost his job. And then eventually they stopped paying Drew Peterson's um, pension, of course, in 2016. But he had been using that pension to care for Stacy and Drew's kids. So he also was like out the money now and just having to take care of the kid. Like this is that t- t- situation
0: where like the kid gets all the blame. Who suffers
1: the most. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's and not kids, his kids from his first marriage – and his kids from his last marriage, are both suffering. I mean, also, I'm sure his kids from his marriage to Kathy, because he had altogether six children, you know? Yep. Despite the hardships, the younger kids, Stacy's kids, are well-loved, happy, and thriving. So, I don't know. Gosh, I I just hope that there's a day when... They find Stacy's body and they can also, you know, close that chapter and Stacy's family and friends can get some justice, you know?
0: Oh, I feel
1: really bad for that older kid. Uh, it's just, a, it's a nightmare scenario and it, it really pisses me off when people are in jail for life and they're never going to get out or they're like on their deathbed and they do not... Say, just admit it that they just did the crime or that where the body could be found or something, that they won't give any peace to anyone. It's like the ultimate selfish fuck you right at the end. Like you're in jail for life. You're never gonna get out. Why, why wouldn't you at least extend a courtesy to her family and friends and say and and tell them the truth? They have to wonder for the rest of their lives where she is, you know? Yeah, but that's also his family. Yeah. It's also his That's what's crazy. Yeah. Ugh, despicable. So gross. So gross. Well, if you guys like this story and we didn't offend you too much if your name is Peterson, then consider leaving us a review. <laughs> we love you all. In conclusion, if a guy cheats with you... He'll cheat on you. 99% of the time,
0: according to Jesse's statistic. (laughs)
1: According to my very scientific
0: number. I feel like also to take away, even if you have a pool, selling a barrel of chlorine in the middle of the night isn't the best cover-up story (laughs)
1: for... Honestly, even if you are like a pool supply salesman, you're still not going to get calls at midnight on a Sunday to sell chlorine. It's not exactly a have to have. No, no. That's a good one, Andy. That's a good one. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Stay safe, everyone. Love you. Thanks for listening and bye.
0: See ya! <laughs>